All right, good morning, everybody. So it was now almost three months ago that we left off in the book of Revelation. Who remembers that we were doing the book of Revelation? Okay, I'm glad a few of you do. Um, We spent nine weeks in the fall looking at Revelation. We got through the first five chapters of the book, and in November, I said, we were going to take a break for Advent season. That break went a little bit longer than Advent season, Uh, but today, we're finally getting back to it. Now, I realize that three months is a while. You can forget a lot in three months, and some of you are new here, Uh, so I'm going to start with some review. I'm going to try to make this as quickly, as quick as possible, but this is some important stuff to get our our minds in uh, the right frame. First, some background information about Revelation. Uh, When was it written? Probably in the 90s AD. That's something that almost all scholars agree on. So uh, late in the first century, about uh, 60 60 years or so after Jesus' resurrection. Who wrote it? Uh, A man named John. Uh, He was in exile on Patmos, uh, likely because of sharing his faith. Now, who was this John? Well, it's possible that this John may have been one of the 12 disciples, the disciple known as the beloved disciple. We don't know that absolutely for sure. If he was, he'd be quite an elderly man at this point, but it is possible that that is who it is. But whoever this John was, he was recognized as a prophet by people in the first century church. Now, as we read Revelation, one of the most important things to keep in mind is the political situation of the time. This is absolutely essential when you're reading this book. And the political situation, of course, is that this was written uh, during the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, Christians in the first century, by and large, lived in the Roman Empire. And at the time... The Roman Empire demanded allegiance from its people. When uh, Revelation was written, the emperor was a guy named Domitian. He was a bad guy. He demanded that even his wife call him my lord and my god. And he expected that people in the empire would participate in rituals where they would pledge their allegiance and devotion to him and to the Roman Empire and recognize him as a god. So during this time, Christians knew that their faithfulness to Jesus could result in persecution, uh, in punishment. It could even result in their death. And so when Revelation was being written, when it was written, the church was always being faced with a question. And that question was, are we going to bow down to Rome and its emperor to keep the peace? Or are we going to be faithful to Jesus and worship him and him alone? That was the question. Are we going to assimilate, or are we going to resist? And one of the main reasons Revelation was written was to encourage Christians in the Roman Empire, resist. It was to encourage them, don't participate in this idolatry, even though your refusal might jeopardize your job, it might uh, jeopardize your finances, it might even jeopardize your life. Don't do it. Because guess what? The empire is doomed. It's doomed. 
Its power is temporary. Its glory is going to fade. Its wickedness is going to lead to ruin. But Jesus' kingdom is forever. Now, obviously, we don't live in the Roman Empire today. But the message of Revelation is relevant for every generation. Because the spirit of the empire is at work in every generation. You know why Star Wars is so popular? Part of the reason it's so popular is because we know it represents something true. There's this evil thing called the empire, right? Why is the empire so mean? Why, why does it seek power and control and try to take everything over? Well, it's hard to put your finger on it exactly, but you know there's this wicked force at work, and there's something about the empire that resonates with our personal experience, too. We know that there are forces at work that are calling us towards idolatry, forces that only care about power and, 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 and uh, pride and, and that sort of thing. In every generation, there are forces at work calling us toward idolatry. Forces that call us to give our time and our attention and our money and our allegiance and our worship to something other than God. And Revelation tells us, even though it's hard to say no to the idolatry, resist. Resist, resist, resist. Now, I don't think I need to tell you guys that this book is one of the hardest books in the Bible to interpret. Probably the hardest book of all. Right? Uh, and that's because most of it is a series of visions. And last fall, you might remember that I tried to give us some ground rules for, you know, some things to keep in mind in order to best interpret and understand and appreciate these visions. So a quick review of what those were. Number one, we have to remember John's visions are often symbolic. They're often symbolic. What does that mean? It means that they communicate things that are true, but not necessarily in literal, concrete terms. You know, many of us have this idea that what Revelation is, is basically a recording of what, 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 we, what we would be told if somebody went up to heaven with a video camera, right? Or if somebody went into the future and had a video camera. And this is, a, 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 in words, a recording of what that video camera captured. But that's not quite right, because Revelation reveals truth through symbols. Now, for example, multiple times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as a lamb. Now, is Jesus literally a lamb? I don't know anybody who thinks that, right? From the most conservative of scholars to the most liberal. Nobody thinks that Revelation is actually, actually saying that Jesus is literally a lamb. But as a symbol, Jesus, the slain lamb, standing on the throne of God, that is a very powerful and important symbol that communicates things that are true about God. It communicates that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins, that he is the ultimate Passover lamb. And the fact that he's on the throne tells us that he is God. And not only that, but it tells us something about the way that God rules the world. It tells us that God rules the world through sacrificial love. It's a beautiful symbol. It, it's full of deep truth, right? But it's not literally true. Jesus is not a barnyard animal. And there are so many things in Revelation that are like that. So we have to keep that in mind. Second thing we need to keep in mind is we've got to be humble, when trying to interpret the symbols in these visions. 
There are people who have given most of their working lives to studying Revelation, and they don't all agree. And I might offer some interpretations that you don't agree with, and we have to be humble enough to still be at peace with each other, even if we have disagreement over Revelation. Okay? And then the last thing we need to remember is we have to be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. When you're studying a book like Revelation, you can get really caught up in trying to figure out what each tiny little detail might represent. But if you do that, you can miss out on the beauty of the bigger picture, of the themes that this book is trying to get across, and of the uh, impressions that it's tr trying to make you feel. Right? Our, Revelation is a very artistic book. And you don't study a painting with a microscope, right? You got to look at the whole thing in order to appreciate it. So those are three things we have to keep in mind. And that brings us finally to where we left off in, no in November. So um, if you want to, okay, you can start making your way to uh, chapter six, Revelation chapter six. But before we actually read that. I got to give a little bit more of a summary of chapters four and five. Now, where we left off in November, John had just had a vision of God's throne. Anyone remember that? And he saw something like a heavenly worship service around the throne where angelic beings were worshiping God. And like most worship service, services in those days, at a certain point, a scroll was brought out to be read from. On those days, this, in those days, the scriptures would have been written on a scroll, right? And in a worship service, eventually, a scroll would be brought out. Um, but that scroll is sealed with seven seals, and nobody has the authority to open it, we're told. And John weeps because nobody has the authority to open up this scroll. But then it's announced that one person does actually have the authority, the Lion of Judah, who is a lion who looks like a lamb, Jesus Christ. He has the authority to open it up. And I explained back in November that I believe uh, Jesus' authority to unseal the scroll represents two things. Uh, it represents that he is the only one who can unlock the meaning of, scripture, of the scriptures. You can't really fully understand the scriptures unless you're interpreting them through Jesus Christ. And secondly, he is the only one who can fulfill Scripture's promises. He is the only one who can bring the plan of God to completion. And so that brings us finally to where we left off in November. So before we read this next chapter, let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who unlocks the meaning of Scripture for us. You are the one who fulfills Scripture's promises. Um, you are the one who brings uh, God's plan of history to completion. And I pray now that as we read this challenging and maybe a little disturbing uh, passage of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen.
I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, let's stop here. Who has heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, this is where that comes from. Now remember, Revelation reveals truth to us through symbols, which means I highly doubt that there will ever come a time in history when any of us will be able to look up at the sky and see a big red horse galloping towards us. The horses are symbols. And it's pretty clear what they're symbols of, right? Uh, The first horse, the white one, symbolizes invaders coming to attack. The second horse, the red one, symbolizes the war that follows after that. So these first two horses go together, war and conquest. The third horse, the black one, represents famine. We're told that the rider is holding a pair of scales in his hands, uh, which is appropriate uh, if he represents famine, because scales would have been used to measure out food in the marketplace. And a voice says, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, what does that mean? Well, normally in that time, a day's wages would get you 10 quarts of wheat. Uh, or 30 quarts of barley. But here, a a day's wages is only getting you uh, a tenth of that. So these prices are horrible. Uh, This is kind of like saying, one pound of chicken for $13. Uh, These prices are so high that no family would be able to live off them. Now, why does it also say, do not damage the oil and the wine? That's kind of confusing, isn't it? Well, in the Roman Empire... There was a famine once that was so bad that there was nowhere near enough wheat and barley to go around. And so the emperor thought, well, maybe if we cut down our vineyards and plant wheat and barley instead, then we'll be able to make up the difference and people will have what they need. But the problem was that only made things worse because the vineyards were a big source of revenue, was a big part of the economy of the Roman Empire. And... When you cut down vineyards, it takes years for them to grow back. They don't grow anywhere near as fast as wheat and barley. 
So what this is saying is there's a famine coming, and it's going to be really bad. It's going to be so bad that people are going to be like, maybe we should cut down the vineyards. But then people are going to say, no, no, no. Don't touch the, the wine and the oil. Don't touch the sources of those things, because that's going to ruin us too. So basically, this is saying there's a famine coming. It's going to be really bad, and there's going to be no good solution to it. And then there's the fourth horse, the pale horse which represents death in Hades, or death in the grave. And this represents the death that is going to come as a result of all three of these horses, as a result of the war and the famine and the disease that's going to be caused by the malnutrition and instability that results from these kinds of things. Sounds pretty awful, huh? Now, it's common for Americans, in my experience, to read this and think, wow, that sounds awful. I wonder when the four horsemen are going to come. I hope I'm not around when they come. But that might not be the right way of thinking about this. Uh, Eugene Peterson, some of you might be familiar with him. He's the guy that wrote the message. Uh, he wrote a book on Revelation, and this is not an exact quote, but he says something like this. The four horsemen represent war and violence and starvation and disease, basically an ordinary day on planet Earth. He's not wrong about that. These four horsemen are present somewhere on Earth every day. Now, will there come a day when they are more present than they are right now? Probably. But if we look at the last 1,925 years of history, these horsemen have shown up a lot. In the 20th century alone, it's estimated that over 108 million people died in war. Just in the 1900s, 108 million people in the 14th century, the Black Plague is estimated to have killed 30 to 60 percent of Europe's population. 30 to 60 percent. In fact, the Black Plague is estimated to have reduced the world's population from about 475 million to 350 million. That's 25 percent of the world. It's estimated that between 1860 and 2016, 128 million people died from famine. You know, we might not be able to look up at the sky and see a red horse galloping towards us, but in every generation, we can go to certain places in the world and we can see what these horsemen represent. If we read this passage and we think, I wonder when the horsemen are going to come, it's probably because we're very privileged. For many people, these horsemen are a present reality. You know, think about it. If you were a European living during the Black Plague and 25% of the world is dying, would you look at this passage and wonder, I wonder when the four horsemen are going to come? No, you're going to think the horsemen are here. So here's what I believe we need to recognize when we read this passage. 
as Jesus unseals the scroll to move history toward its fulfillment, as he moves history towards uh, God's promises being fulfilled, this is saying there's going to be a lot of war, a lot of famine, a lot of disease. That is the nature of the time period between Jesus' resurrection and the realization of the kingdom of God, where everything is made right with the world. In the interim, these horsemen are going to be running wild, and we shouldn't expect anything different. So when we read about the horsemen, we should hear scripture saying to us, don't be surprised by the suffering in the world. Don't let it lead you to think that God isn't on his throne. This stuff has to happen. This is part of getting from the resurrection to the realization of God's promises. The other thing that we should hear the scriptures saying to us here is, put your hope in the Lamb because no other power will last. Put your hope in the Lamb, because no other power will last. In the first century, do you know what Christians would think when they read about the four horsemen? They would think, the great and powerful Roman Empire isn't always going to be so great and powerful, is it? Now, why would they think that? Well, the first horse, the one that comes to conquer, is described as having a bow. And that's significant because the only people in that time who were archers, skilled archers, were the Parthians. Uh, And the Parthian Empire was, guess what? Right to the east of the Roman Empire. So this image of a horseman with a bow coming to conquer is clearly designed to strike fear in the hearts of people in the Roman Empire. Same with the description of the famine, right? Because it directly references the oil and the wine, which were products of the Roman Empire's vineyards. And so the point is this. Rome's power is temporary. The empire's power is temporary. Rome might seem like it's the most powerful authority in the world. It might seem like its wealth is endless. It might seem like its military is unstoppable. It might seem like if you don't worship the emperor, you're doomed. But the truth is, Rome is weak. In spite of all its pride and its boasting and its violence, Rome will eventually die because it does not worship the lamb. It doesn't recognize the power of the lamb and the power of the way of the lamb, which is sacrificial love. In any society that doesn't recognize that that is what true power is, sacrificial love, any society that doesn't recognize that will eventually undo itself. Eventually its sins will catch up to it. A society can only worship at the altars of money and violence and pride for so long before it collapses. That was true then, and it's still true today. The power of the, of the lamb and the way of the lamb is forever, and any other power is fleeting. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. So John says that he sees the martyrs, the people who have died for their faith, crying out for God to judge the world and avenge them. Now, to be honest, for a while I I struggled with this passage a little bit because, you know, it sounds like the martyrs are really focused on revenge and... uh, That doesn't sound like the way of the Lamb, right? We know from other places in Scripture that God calls us to uh, turn from revenge and and to love our enemies, not to hate them. The way of the Lamb is sacrificial love. But I don't think what the martyrs are saying here is incongruent with Jesus' teachings. I don't see this so much as a cry for revenge as a cry for justice. I... uh, I'm often interested in documentaries on Netflix that talk about uh, crime and that sort of thing. And, and recently I watched this documentary about someone who was put in jail for years and years on a false confession. And I just, my heart was just crying out for justice. I thought, this is terrible. This man, has, he should not be in jail. He's been in jail for 30-something years. And... I don't know for sure, but the documentary made it sound like it had something to do with police corruption. And my heart was crying out, Lord, how long before there's justice? The martyrs are crying out for justice. They chose the way of the lamb. They followed the lamb all the way to the point of death. But even after their sacrifice, they can see that the world is still continuing on in injustice and idolatry. People still don't believe in the Lamb or the way of the Lamb. People are still worshiping money and power and violence. And the martyrs are saying, how much longer, God? How much longer before you put things right? How much longer before you finally say enough is enough? How much longer before you vindicate people like us and prove that the way of the Lamb is really the way of true power? How much longer? Even if we haven't suffered a martyr's death, which obviously none of us have, right? We might still be asking those kinds of questions. How much longer, God? How much longer are you going to allow wicked people to be successful? How much longer will you allow cheaters to prosper? How much longer are you going to allow injustice? And people to sit in jail on false convictions. How much longer? And the answer God gives is essentially, be patient. Be patient. He gives each of them a white robe, which is a symbol of purity and victory. It's kind of like saying, be patient. You guys have already won. He gives them the robe and he says, wait a little longer. Basically, before we get to the end, guys, there's going to be more martyrs. 
There are going to be more people who demonstrate their devotion to the Lamb and the way of the Lamb to the fullest extent. But in the meantime, be patient. I believe that the reason God calls the martyrs to be patient is because he's patient. And he's patient because he wants to give people time to turn to him. 2 Peter 3.9 talks about the coming judgment of the world, and it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. In other words, these people were saying, How long, Lord? How long? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why hasn't God made it clear to the world that the martyrs were right? Why hasn't he put all the people who oppose the lamb and the way of the lamb in their place? Why hasn't he done that yet? Because he's patient with sinners. That's why. He's even more patient than the martyrs. He doesn't want to destroy people. He wants people to repent. He wants people to turn from their idolatry and put their trust in the lamb. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. That's the testimony throughout scripture. So he says to the martyrs, be patient. Let's look at one more seal. Seal number six, verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, remember, Revelation reveals truth through symbols, right? Are the stars in the sky literally going to fall on the earth? Is the sky really going to recede like a scroll? Is the sun really going to become black? One commentary I looked at said this, and it, it made me laugh. This is Craig S. Keener. He's a pretty conservative scholar. He says, one, not, one need not be an astronomer to understand that the ancient images of stars falling to earth are physically impossible. All stars would have to become black holes to fit on earth, and then trillions of them would have to hurl at millions of times the speed of light into the earth's surface, no one would live long enough to lament their misery, as in 6, 16 through 17. Nor could anyone survive if the sun went completely black, right? So what is going on here? One of the greatest biblical scholars of our time is a man named N.T. Wright. And this is what Wright says about this kind of imagery. He says, in the Old Testament... Language about the sun turning black and the moon becoming like blood, the stars falling from heaven, and so on, 
was regularly employed as a way of speaking about what we would call earth-shattering events. Not at all meaning actual earthquakes, but rather tumultuous events such as the fall of the Berlin Wall or the smashing of the Twin Towers on September 11, 2011. What happens in this passage is John describes the most stable parts of creation as becoming unstable, right? The ground, the sun, the moon, the stars. All these things we just depend on to do their thing without worrying about it, right? We don't go to bed at night and think, oh, I wonder if the sun's going to come up in the morning. I wonder if it's going to shine, right? But in this passage, all of those things are becoming unstable. And what someone like N.T. Wright would say, and I would agree with him, is that this, sim this symbolizes political and social chaos. It represents societies falling apart, uh, governments collapsing, economic disaster, natural disasters, social upheaval, riots. Basically, all the structures of human society that people depend on crumbling, coming apart. And John says that when that happens, people of all social classes will try to hide from God. As all the things that they put their hope in crumble away, they will try to hide from God. Uh, anyone who's put their hope in the structures of human society, like wealth, politics, military strength, they will suddenly realize the source of my hope is gone, and they will be desperate to hide from God. And in this vision, John sees them hiding in caves and, and begging the mountains to fall down on them so they don't have to see the face of God. And I want us to think about what that's saying. These, these people are so desperate not to face God that they're saying, God, make the, or not God, but make the mountain fall down on me. Mountain, come down and, and kill me so that I don't have to see the face of God, so that I don't have to face him. I'm reminded here of the story of Adam and Eve. Other side of the Bible, right? Very beginning. Uh, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, what did they do? They tried to hide from God, right? They were embarrassed and they were scared because they had sinned against God, and so they tried to hide from him. But of course they couldn't hide. Nobody can hide from God, nor should we try. We shouldn't try to hide from God because the worst thing that can happen to us is to be separated from him. The wrath of God is what we experience when we hide from God, not when we come to him. There's an interesting phrase in this passage this is the last thing I want us to think about today. The wrath of the Lamb. The people call on the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from God and the wrath of the Lamb. And I want us to take a moment to think about that phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. Isn't that kind of a strange phrase? Have you ever seen a wrathful Lamb? Can you imagine a horror movie titled The Wrath of the Lamb? Now, a wrathful lion, that makes sense, right? A wrathful lion will do what? It will attack you and eat you. 
But a wrathful lamb, what will a wrathful lamb do? I don't know for sure, but my best guess is that if a, ra if a lamb was truly wrathful, it would probably just leave the object of its wrath alone. And I think that's the best way for us to think about the wrath of Jesus, the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of God. The wrath of the lamb is a lamb-like wrath. It's not out of character with the lamb's sacrificial love. It's not out of character with Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies and praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. It's the kind of wrath that doesn't attack, but it says, I will give you over to your choices. If you don't want me, I will let you go your own way. And I'll let you suffer the consequences. So, I, I bring that up because I don't want you to let these scary visions in Revelation draw you away from Jesus. Let them draw you to him, okay? Don't hide from God. Seek his face. Because that face is the face of sacrificial love for you. That face is the face that wants to redeem you. That face is the face that wants to transform you into someone who follows the way of the Lamb. The way of sacrificial love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this world uh, that is filled with the, what is represented by the horsemen, uh, disease and death and war and violence, starvation. God, I pray that we would be people who are faithful to you. I pray that we would be people who embody the way of the Lamb, Lord, the way of love in a world that is in tumult, Lord. And <clears throat> I pray uh, that as we read these uh, frightening passages and reflect on them, um, that we would see not just a warning, but a source of hope, too. That the world will not always be unjust. That the cries that we have, how long, Lord, how long until things are set right, um, that they will eventually be set right. Give us the patience, Lord, as we wait. And help us to be faithful, to embody the way of the Lamb, and to be faithful to you in the interim. In Jesus' name, amen.